The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is a real honor and pleasure to introduce my guest, Ms. Susan Futrell. She is Director of Marketing for Red Tomato, a Massachusetts-based nonprofit that does marketing, sales, logistics, and market development for a network of fruit and vegetable farmers in the northeastern U.S. She's also the author of a terrific book that we're going to be discussing today titled Good Apples, Behind Every Bite. This is a well-researched and indexed, including a grand note section. It's just the kind of book that anyone who's interested in the food system will want to pick up. Ms. Futrell helped develop and directs the Eco-Apple Program, which is a collaboration among fruit growers, researchers, and scientists from land-grant institutions and nonprofits, which supports advanced ecological orchard and pest management practices with a goal of sustaining local fruit production in the United States. And for over 35 years, Ms. Futrell has worked with food businesses, nonprofit organizations, and farms in marketing and distribution, including over two decades in the natural and organic foods industry. Ms. Futrell writes and speaks frequently on the challenges of bringing local foods to a broader segment of U.S. eaters, sustaining family farms, and the history, science, and joys of apples. Welcome, Sue. Thank you so much. This is such a beautiful book, Good Apples Behind Every Bite. And of course, I started out reading about where you are bidding in an auction style, only online, for an orchard. And I thought, okay, she's going to get the orchard, and then we're going to learn all about her adventures on the orchard. But no, you don't get the orchard. And instead, you describe apple production in the United States. It's a real twist, and it's wonderful. Tell me, what compelled you to write this book? Well, it's a good thing I didn't get the orchard, or I never would have written the book or probably done much else for um, many years. But it was a moment for me when I realized how much I cared about, this was a a long-time family-owned orchard five generations, and then the fact that it was being sold made me really think deeply about why I cared and what was at stake if we don't have orchards like that in our landscape and our communities anymore. So I wrote the book in part to share some of that love for what fruit growers bring to all of us, but also to help just ordinary eaters and and people who are interested in food, farming, care about where their food comes from, understand more what it takes and really what's at stake for the people who are making a living producing food like that. And there's so much, apples are amazing, people who grow apples are even more amazing, and I really wanted to share some of that with people in a way that you might not otherwise have access to in the grocery store, at the farmer's market, or on a quick we can visit to a pick your own. Mm-hmm. And apples, what could be more American than apple pie? 
So this is a true national treasure of a fruit. In fact, you describe it as a democratic fruit. And I think that the story that you tell about the whole apple, I hesitate to use the word industry, but you do go into the industrialization of apple production versus the family farms and what happens when we lose those family orchards. And I think it's worth noting what happened to the orchard that you attempted to bid on. Why was the orchard up for bidding in the first place? That particular orchard was a not uncommon situation where in the generational transfer from the older generation that had operated the farm and lived there for many, many years to a younger generation where families had gone off and done other things with their lives. And the next generation just wasn't able to agree on what to do with the orchard. And a lot of times when that happens, it's also a situation where nobody in the family has the resources to take on the whole thing. So in this case, there was just a a disagreement, an inability to to take it on, and they put it up for sale. Mm -hmm. And you were concerned, and rightfully so, because so many of these beautiful landscapes that produce nourishing food for people that keeps them well, of course, being a dietitian, apples are core, no pun intended, (laughs) to good health. They're rich in fiber, they're rich in powerful antioxidants, and every time I see a different variety... I think, oh, there's a unique blend of nutrients in all of those varieties. So we don't want to have monoculture farms, nor do we want to have a monoculture diet. And you talk about, well, what happens to this orchard? Will it continue to produce beautiful, healthful fruit? Will it be sold to a development? Will there be a mall? Will there be a grid of houses with, you know, orchard lane on it? While we import our fruit from, say, Washington State or upstate New York, elsewhere, but not in our own backyards. And so I think for all of us to have an investment, which you described this at the end of the book about how we have to have civic engagement to protect the land that is in our backyard and producing food to feed our population. So kudos to you for writing this powerful book. I'm going to jump around a bit. So I want to talk about varieties because that's really critical to me. Is there anything more exciting than trying a new variety of an apple? I can just see you having these tastings. But on page 96, you say just 11 varieties make up 90% of apples sold in American grocery stores. But there had been over 2,500 varieties of apples at some point. Yes, and actually probably well beyond that. I've seen catalogs of up to 16,000 different varieties. So one thing about apple varieties that I I want to highlight, because you're so right that apples are a very, they're deeply integrated into our history of coming to this continent and moving westward and putting down apple tree roots as a way of claiming land for white settlers who came and were moving the previous residents, native, off of some of that land. Apples were really a European fruit that was brought to the U.S. They're not native to the U.S., but they were beloved by many of the people who came from elsewhere to North America. And when they came, many of them brought seeds and cuttings and bits and pieces of the fruit from their homelands. 
So when apples came to North America as a brand new immigrant, there was actually just an explosion of diversity because every apple seed produces its own version of an apple. So unlike some other fruits and there and I had a lot of help explaining the genetics and the biology of this in the book from some of my scientist friends but basically in in the same way that no two humans are exactly alike and even if they're brother and sister no two apple trees that are produced from one of the thousands of seeds that come from every single apple tree is exactly alike so when people were moving into new land and territory and planting trees, they most often planted seedlings. Seeds were easier to carry, more durable than a a cutting that had to be grafted. And so all these thousands and thousands of new kinds of apples were planted within a period of a couple hundred years in a way that they just hadn't been anywhere else in the world. Hmm. So we've had lots and lots of varieties. Some of them taste better than others. Some of them are good for cooking, some are good for eating, some are good for cider or vinegar and not much else. Some are good for all of those things and became particular favorites for people to graft and trade and and propagate. And out of all that came both just the diversity that comes from all that expansion and planting of seeds, but also a very vigorous and devoted apple breeding program at many, many, many of the land-grant and public universities that grew up really out of the collaborative efforts of apple growers to help find and keep and propagate and produce more of the favorite varieties that everybody loved. Mm. And we're so limited, really, in our grocery stores. In fact, when I read that 11 varieties make up 90% of the apples sold in most American grocery stores, I thought, Gosh, do I have access to 11 varieties in my grocery store? I don't think so. That would be a really good thing. There are a few varieties that I might not see at the supermarket when I go to my farmer's market. But I'm wondering, do you have a favorite? Oh, I always get asked that. And I have to say, it kind of depends on what I'm using it for and what part of the country I'm in. But I'm a Midwesterner at heart. I grew up in Iowa, and my favorite apple has always been the Jonathan. Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of growers out in the Northeast U.S., and when I'm out here, my favorite apple out here is a Macowan. Mm. I don't believe I've ever tasted that. And those are really good apples for fresh eating, and they also are great for cooking. Uh Uh-huh. So they're sweet tart, I would say, crisp but juicy. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) You hit my flavor profile. Yeah. But one of the things that's so great about apples, and I think one of the reasons that they're such a popular fruit and also such a good lens to help understand farming and agriculture and food in, in some broader ways is that for every single person who has a, a different set of taste buds, there's probably an apple to please. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, not everybody likes the same thing. Some people like sweet. Some people like tart. Some people like crisp. Some people cook their apples. So the diversity is one of the coolest things about the kind of access we have to apples is everybody can have their own favorite. Yeah. Well, in my region, there is an older gentleman who has an orchard of Arkansas black apples. Oh, yes. 
And what I love about these apples is that really dark red skin and that white, just sweet with a hint of tartness flesh. Um, oh, that at least is that's, a beautiful apple. Isn't it beautiful? Yes. And I can see that that variety might be one of those that would be dwindling. And I think, oh, no, I want to preserve this beautiful fruit. But when I go to the supermarket, it's the Macintosh. Well, sometimes Macintosh. Mostly Jonathan's, delicious, of course. Maybe a golden delicious. And absolutely, you've got your tart one. So there might be a Granny Smith or very popular and more expensive, as you describe in the book, these kind of branded celebrity apples. And the one that comes to mind because it's in my market is the Honeycrisp. And it was so interesting the way you described how if you want to grow this apple, you have to be a member of a marketing association. You have to buy in to be part of this club. How did that happen? First, let me just say that that, that is actually not true of the Honeycrisp oh, okay. itself. It was developed at the University of Minnesota, and it's widely sold by nurseries in the U.S. and elsewhere. And it is hands down one of the most popular apples to become available in, in the last several decades. So there's lots and lots of it being grown. But it spurred a shift toward the approach that you're talking about of finding and trademarking and branding varieties and then controlling access to them partly as a way of controlling quality and making sure they were being grown in good conditions, but also partly as a way of managing supply and being able to market them as a specialty. So one of the reasons that some of the apple breeding and fruit development has moved in the direction of what's sometimes called club or apples that you have to join and buy a license to be able to grow or sell is that the public funding for that kind of research and development has dwindled significantly over the last few decades. And so even at a public university like University of Minnesota that developed the Honeycrisp, to fund ongoing research and development to serve the needs of apple growers, one of the ways they have strategized to do that is to license some of the varieties that they're developing and, and have some of that money come back into the university and some of it go directly to the folks that are doing the development work. It's a tough line to walk, and it, it's not always that controlled access of a product of a public university is controversial, and not everybody thinks that's a good way to develop new varieties. But again, I think part of what I really learned in talking with growers and doing the research for the book is how much more than just our shopping behavior can help all of us support the kind of diverse fruit growing and food and agriculture. It is partly about what you buy in the grocery store, but it's also about public policy and infrastructure and support for research and breeding programs and all of those things. And some of it really is something consumers can have an, an impact on. The reason there are a couple thousand apple varieties being grown in the U.S. right now and only a dozen or so that you can actually buy in the grocery store has more to do with consumers and the marketing of apples than it has to do with growers, many of whom would love it if they could grow more of those other varieties and find markets for them. Mm. So there's a place where we can really make a difference. 
Yeah. Sue, let me take one break. I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Susan Futrell. She has worked in marketing and food distribution for more than 35 years. She is Director of Marketing for Red Tomato, a Massachusetts-based nonprofit that does marketing, sales, logistics, and market development for a network of fruit and vegetable farmers in the Northeast U.S. She's the author of a fabulous book titled Good Apples Behind Every Bite, and I should mention that she has an MFA in nonfiction writing from the University of Iowa, which explains why this writing is exceptional. And can a nonfiction book on apples be a page turner? I would say yes, based on this one book, Good Apples Behind Every Bite. All right, I want to jump back to something you mentioned right before we took our break, and that has to do with consumer perception. And like you, I also go back and I look at old advertisements, old marketing strategies that we use to promote different foods. And I notice that there are some old advertisements for different pesticide sprays to make that perfect piece of fruit. And I have gotten to the point where I am so alarmed by what some of these pesticides can do to children's developing brains, let alone aquatic organisms, birds, and soil microbes that I actually look for fruit that is either grown organically or from farmers who really take an approach where they don't use a lot of poison. And if I look at a fruit at the market and I see that it's perfect, I tend not to want to buy it. I look for fruit that's got marks on it because that tells me that there probably wasn't a lot of spraying in its production. Tell me your impression of consumers and how they drive the market and farming practices from your experience? One of the biggest challenges, I think, for growers in different parts of the country, apples are grown in every one of the 50 states, including Alaska and Hawaii. But the vast majority of the apples that we eat here in the U.S. come from Washington State, about 65% of them. And by far the majority, over 90%, close to 95% of the organically grown apples in the U.S. also come from Washington State. And one of the reasons for that is that, again, the popularity of certain varieties has pushed toward larger scale and concentration of those few varieties, even though most of the farms in Washington State are still family-owned and orchards the fruit itself is being marketed and packaged by larger organizations and so efficiencies and standardization come into play there. But a more important factor is the growing conditions that really vary strongly from region to region and make Washington State a particularly great place to produce organic fruit. It's dry there. The pest pressures are considerably less than they are in, in many other places. There are also large contiguous areas of orchards, so some of the natural biological pest management can really be developed at a larger scale and be managed well. In other parts of the country, and particularly east of the Mississippi River, so the Midwest and um, the Northeast, the growing conditions are very, very different. So I work with a network of growers who use very, very ecological practices 
but are challenged to use organic practices in an environment where their disease and pest pressures are many times greater. They have to make very different choices about what substances they can use and what might be a good ecological choice in a situation where you are only spraying once or twice, say, in a dry environment, becomes a very different kind of choice if you have to spray 10 or 12 times every week because of rain and changes in the weather. So I've learned so, so much from these growers about the difference between a national kind of black and white version of what's good and what's bad growing and a much more nuanced, true to the locale and the climate and the environment and the, the fruit varieties approach to growing ecologically. Yeah, I, I guess, really appreciated yeah. that section of your book because you helped me see less in black and white and really understand some of the problems with each of the different substances that are used and why they're used and what alternatives are and why we need so much more public funding to really help drive this research. Well, then I've been successful with at least one reader because really part of my goal was to help take us beyond a sort of black and white. And again, this is where I think an appreciation of what fruit growers are bringing to all of us and why supporting them in their efforts to do ecological growing with research, with market choices like the ones you're making, little less attention to cosmetics can make a difference. Another thing I've learned in my research, and I'm like you, I love to look at old advertisements, and I did a lot of history reading just because I'm interested in it. And one of the things that disabused me of the notion that back in the good old days, everything was done natural and organic, and now we're in the bad days. Um, actually, for many, many years, starting in the late 1800s, the kinds of pesticides that were used on apple trees were in significantly harsher and more toxic than the kinds of substances and the more carefully managed treatments that are being used now. So one example of that is if you are building in an area where there was an old orchard, often the soil has to be mediated for arsenic right. because there's such a heavy concentration of that very toxic substance, which was used for many, many years as a kind of all-purpose treatment for commercial fruit growers. So it's not black and white. There are many reasons to be concerned about what we're doing, and I'm a huge proponent of organic. I've supported and been in favor of that approach for many, many years, but I'm also a much more focused on what really makes sense for this grower in this particular location and these particular challenges. And that has really become more important to me that we have these growers all over the country and not just in one place where everyone's growing using the same practices. I want there to be an orchard down the road from you and down the road from me. And I want their fruit to be in the grocery store when I go in there mm -hmm. and and have choices to make. Exactly. You know, I also love the section of labor because th there's an old, I believe it's a Vietnamese quote that says, when you eat a fruit, think of the person who planted the tree and also the hand that harvested that fruit. And to me, what this book helps me do is not that I take food for granted. I, I want to help others really revere food 
but also to value the people who are doing the incredibly painstaking, backbreaking work in harvesting this food. And you've got a wonderful section where you talk about immigrant labor and how we really need to rethink how we view people who are doing this hard work to put the fruit on our plates. Do you want to say anything about your labor section? Sure. That was one of my favorite sections in terms of the people I spoke with and got to interview and also one of the most challenging to express. And you've said it very well. One of the beautiful things about apples that it's easy to forget is that hands are touching every single apple that you eat. They're hand-picked. Labor shortages are pushing research into the mechanical ways of picking apples, but really so far nothing has replaced that person touching the fruit and putting it into a bag and making its way. So the thing I think that I took away the most from talking both with orchard owners and managers and people who work in the orchards for a living is how interdependent all of that is and how much of a mutual respect and need for each other the orchard owners and and workers have and how much both of them are caught up in a system, particularly right now in the U.S., that does not value that labor or support and give dignity either to the the farmers who are trying to have their crops harvested and work with people with, with dignity, but also to the workers. So across the board, when I spoke with growers in different parts of the country and with the people who are working in the orchards, whether they're local workers or they're coming in as guest workers, everyone in common felt a desire to have a different way of thinking about immigration, about farm labor, and about the people who pick and grow our fruit. It's common across political viewpoints, across large-scale, small-scale, organic, not organic, It's an unseen common ground that I think we have with each other and with the people who are growing and picking our fruit that there's a better way to do this than the system that everyone is caught in right now. Mm -hmm. Because we are so short on time, I'm just going to have to let people find your book. The title again is Good Apples Behind Every Bite by Susan Futrell. The last chapter, I think, is absolutely worthy of everyone's attention because it deals with the democracy of apples. But in the few seconds we have left, could you just let our listeners know what happened to the orchard that you were bidding on? Yes, and thank you, Melinda. It's been a true pleasure to talk with you. I bid on an orchard only because I didn't want it to become a housing development. I had no business or real prospects of making a go as an orchardist myself. I didn't get the bid. Someone else did. And several years later, I learned that it was a young family from the community who bought it. They have turned it into a fabulous pick-your-own orchard and bakery and destination in their community. They've kept it very much in the tradition of lots of different varieties and lots of people in the orchard. It's called Appleberry Orchards in uh, southeast Iowa, and it's a fabulous place. 
That's great. What a happy, optimistic note to end our interview on. Susan, you've been such a delight. We must close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank producer Dan Hemmelgarn and the recording studios at KOPN in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, a big thanks to Susan Futrell. She is the author of this tremendous book we've been talking about, Good Apples Behind Every Bite. You can learn more about Sue's great work at Susan Futrell. Dot ink. That's I-N-K. And I will provide a link to that for all of our radio listeners. Thank you, Sue. Thank you so much. Melinda, it's been a pleasure. 